Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. There's a place in Connecticut that's known as the submarine capital of the world. Can you name it? Today, Where We Live, we'll learn about Naval Submarine Base New London. It's been 100 years since the U.S. Navy designated its first submarine base on the Thames River in Broughton. The commanding officer of the sub-base joins us to talk about the history of submarines in Connecticut and how these stealthy boats are key to military strategy and national security. We'll also find out more about the men and women who build these submarines. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that remains an important part of the state's economy. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me is Captain Paul Whitescarver, commanding officer of Naval Submarine Base New London. He became the 51st commanding officer of the sub-base this past December. Also, Congressman Joe Courtney is here. He represents Connecticut's 2nd District, which includes the eastern third of the state, such as the town of Groton and New London. Welcome to where we live. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning. First off, Captain Whitescarver, um, I understand you moved to Connecticut late last year. I wanted to find out how the state's been treating you and your family. You know, the, uh, the, the community around the base, which includes uh, the town of Groton and Ledyard, and even all the towns that surround there have been very welcoming to me. Uh, the change of command in December was phenomenal, and the congressman was there. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see how the, uh, the community has really embraced the base. I don't think you'll find that anywhere else in the country, so it's a privilege to be here. That's interesting because you came here from Norfolk, Virginia, right? And so uh, the idea of embracing the base, that it's not a, a tight community there in, in Norfolk? Well, uh, if you can imagine, there's at least five bases around there, so I don't know how you can you can get the, the name uh, part of it and have the community surround just one particular base. But for us, we're, we're it down there, so uh, the community is, is superb. I've heard that um, if a sailor is assigned to the submarine force, at some point they'll be stationed and receive training at, at sub-base New London. Is that correct? That's true. Just every, every sailor that boards a submarine touches Groton and New London at some point in their career. So is this a, a homecoming of sorts for you? I mean, you served on several submarines, commanded um, another. Um, talk about your time um, in New London. So uh, uh, my officer career, which started back in 1991, we all go to uh, – and my time in Connecticut has, has been varied even before then. But my time uh, in the submarine community as an officer, we go to submarine officer basic uh, school there. Then we go to sea for a tour. Then we'll come back for our department head tour. We go to an advanced course, uh, and then we'll go do our department head tour. And then even the XO and the CO rides are the same way. I came to PXO school here. And my uh, submarine advance co- or my submarine command course started here. So I've touched Groton for the last 25 years in some form or fashion. Never been stationed here for a tour, but uh, I'm enjoying my tour now. I'll tell you that. We're going to talk more about the history of the submarine century here in Connecticut. I wanted to bring into the conversation Marion Galbraith. She's the mayor of the city of Groton and chair of Connecticut's submarine century committee. Hello, Mayor. 
morning, Lucy. So I just heard from Captain Whitescarver about um, the unique community that surrounds Groton and the sub-base. Tell me about um, the connection that the community has with the base. Well, it's a pretty strong connection. I mean, if you start with economics, the, the base and the uh, and EB are very, very important to our economy. But, but I always say that more important than that is the is the culture that is created in our community by having so many men and women who are dedicated to service above themselves. I think that changes a community and it makes us a better place to live. It can be a little confusing, though, right? So it's Naval Submarine Base New London, but it's in <laughs> Groton. That's right. Uh, well, that's because the land was originally granted to the Navy by the uh, by the by New London by the County of New London, and um, its first office was actually located on State Street in New London. Uh, Congressman Courtney is also in studio with us. Uh, talk about, I mean, this is obviously in your district. You've been uh, very active um, in representing the sub-base, the interests of, of the community, as well as Electric Boat, which we'll talk about later. But how unique is this part of the state? Uh, I think it's a very special place. The um, uh, And again, we, we have had just outstanding leadership from Captain Whitescarver since he took over uh, in December. I mean, he has been out in the community uh, you know, constantly, which I think is is you know again a great testament to his understanding about um, you know ma- sort of making that um, connection as, as as strong and deep as possible. But he's also doing a great job in terms of upgrading and modernizing uh, the base, which um, you know I think is uh, consistent with where the Navy's going. Again, I'm ranking member on Sea Power now, so you know we get a lot of briefings about the importance of the undersea uh, fleet in terms of uh, challenges our nation faces. Um, so, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, improving the piers where the the, the boats tie up or um, uh, improving the energy systems, which is really, I think, uh, number one on his uh, agenda right now. He's just doing uh, a great job. But, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what the base means in terms of, uh, again, the local community, but also the nation, uh, Admiral uh, Jonathan Greenert, who was the chief of naval operations who just stepped down um, a, a few months ago, he uh, back in 2012, uh, made the comment that um, this is where we build and launch our submarines to go to sea, and this is the place where we intellectually build our submariners. And and really, that's where I think the the unique um, role of the submarine base in terms of the submarine learning center, um, the, you know, the different programs that um, Captain Whitescarver referred to, the undersea medical research center, which uh, again is where all of the work is done on sleep issues, um, you know, keeping um, people physically and mentally, um, you know, at the highest level, which is critical. I mean, there's no margin for error when when people are serving on submarines. And all of that happens uh, here in, in Connecticut. The um, and, and Greenert, before he left, actually designated uh, Groton as the undersea warfighting center for the entire U.S. fleet. So we have an admiral, a flag officer, Admiral Trussler, who uh, was in the day, New London Day today, actually uh, gave uh, uh, a presentation last night about his work as part of the submarine century effort. And um, and really, you know, people are reporting to Groton from uh, San Diego and Norfolk under his command. So, um, you know, it's easy to sometimes think, well, you know, you're the local congressman, you know, you're just kind of doing the hometown uh, shout out. But the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, I get a, 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 an opportunity to see it from um, the Armed Services Committee and, and from Washington and, and talking to the leadership of the Navy and the work that Admiral Whitescarver and the 10,000 sailors and Admiral Trussler and others are doing there is absolutely, um, you know, at the cutting edge of, of where uh, the Navy's going in the 21st century. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanshu. We're talking about the centennial uh, that Connecticut is celebrating. A hundred years ago, this June, the U.S. Navy designated Naval Submarine Base New London as its first sub-base in Groton. On the phone with me is Mayor Marion Galbraith. Um, we're hearing from Congressman Courtney about um, just the impact of, of what the sub-base means to the entire U.S. Navy. Um, talk a little bit more about the people that live in Groton and the uh, the partnership, um, who who may work, the civilians who work on base. Uh, talk a little bit about that, Mayor. So I, I'm going to talk about it a little bit from the perspective of a teacher. I taught for 33 years in Groton, and, and one of the really wonderful things about our area is that we have so many submariner families. It's, it's the submariners and their families who add to our community because those families come into our community and they volunteer. They become part of Little League. They make a difference in our school. They open up our, our kids' eyes to what the world can be. And I think that's a really important facet of, of what the community is. It, it, it's the base and the submariners' families that, that really make a difference. We want to hear from you if you've been involved in Connecticut's submarine community. Call 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So can we talk a little bit more, Captain Whitescarver, about the people who are stationed at the sub-base? How many sailors and their families live there? Uh, approximately 6,500 sailors and families live around in the area, and then we have another 3,500 folks that, that are civilians that work on the, in the area. We have uh, 1,800 uh, housing units that are on the exterior of the base uh, designated just for Navy families, and, and then we spread out. Uh, you could probably put a 50 to 60 nautical mile or mile radius around the base, and all the families are pretty much spread out throughout the southeastern part of the state. And Mayor Galbraith, you said that you were a teacher for many years? Yes. Um, tell, talk a little bit about how um, the, the city and the town are celebrating this centennial. Well, we have a year-long celebration, and the height of it is really coming up. Um, as, as you mentioned, June is the anniversary. Actually, June 21st is the 100th anniversary of the sub-base and the sub-school. We're going to have a big community birthday party at Washington Park in the evening with music and food vendors and activities and all kinds of things. The Coast Guard Band is going to be doing a concert the next night. We have just tons of activities. We have a, a public art project called Connecticut Submarine Trail that will be put in place in the first week of July and will be available. Uh, there, these are 20 fiberglass submarines that have been decorated by local artists and will be placed throughout southeastern Connecticut. There's just lots of activities, and I think it's uh, a real indicator of the outpouring of support that the community has for the base. This isn't just one individual or one organization. This is lots of organizations, several towns pulling together to show their support. And I believe we have a link to a lot of those events happening um, at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I wanted to ask you, Mayor Galbraith, obviously um, the southeast corner of the state um, appreciates and values um, the submarine culture and history. But do you feel like the rest of the state, there's a disconnect about the the importance of this part of the state? Um, well, I'm not sure. I think that a lot of Connecticut has its eyes on the defense industry, and we're a part of that. Um, I, I certainly don't feel neglected by uh, our governor. I, I was very pleased that he was that he was the one who designated this as Connecticut Submarine Century. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not sure we feel too neglected. Uh, sometimes we feel, uh, you know, I think everybody tends to think, well, every uh, other people are getting the attention, but um, I think we get attention down here. And you're on the phone with us, and not in studio. That's because you're actually in Norfolk, Virginia. What are you doing there? 
I'm about to um, go out to an aircraft carrier, the Dwight D. Eisenhower, and spend the night. And how do you prepare yourself for that? <laughs> well, mostly I've got uh, a lot of jitters. <laughs> um, uh, I slept well, and uh, I, I've been uh, reading up all about it and a little nervous, but uh, really, really excited about the opportunity. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Groton Mayor Marion Galbraith. Again, more information about the events surrounding the Connecticut Submarine Century can be found on our website, WMPR.org. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Captain Paul Whitescarver. He's the commanding officer of the sub-base New London and with Representative Joe Courtney from Connecticut's 2nd Congressional District. We'll talk about the role of the submarine in today's military force and what might be in the future for subs. Join the conversation. We especially want to hear from you if you've been involved in Connecticut's submarine community. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're looking back on 100 years of submarine history in the state. It was 1868 when Connecticut conveyed 86 acres to the U.S. Navy along the Thames River. Later in 1916, the Navy Yard in Groton would become the first submarine base in the U.S. In studio with me is Captain Paul Whitescarver, commanding officer of Naval Submarine Base New London, and 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. Do you have questions about the role submarines play in our local economy and in U.S. military strategy? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or email where we live at wmpr.org. So, Captain Whitescarver, before the break, we were talking about the sailors that are stationed at the sub base. But what I was curious about is, you know, there's lots of different specialties and jobs in the Navy. What kind of person does it take to become a submariner? Well, I like to say they're all top-notch. From the enlisted ranks to the officer ranks, we kind of skim off the top, so to speak. And the pipeline to get to the submarine, it doesn't matter if you're a, a member of the nuclear uh, propulsion program that uh, takes about a two-year pipeline to get to the submarine, or if you're in the forward rates that uh, handle our sonar and our fire control systems, same amount of time, about two years to get through all the schooling uh, and the technical, uh, uh, so to speak, training before they get to the ship uh, takes place. So it's a, it's a long process, and when we get there, we like to keep them. Uh, so we have lots of incentives to keep our sailors uh, on one of our marvels of technological advancements in our in our in our generation and generations before us. And when we're talking about submarines of today, we're not talking about the World War II era subs and the, the small size. I mean, these submarines are huge, right? Oh yeah. So if you were to compare it to the G class that came up the river in 1915 or 1916, the Virginia class submarines are roughly four times the size of the original uh, submarines that came up to up to New London. So, and if you were to look at the range that these uh, submarines can go, the old G-Class 100 years ago could go about 740 nautical miles. Our submarines today can go for 30 years because uh, we don't refuel them for the life of the ship. So, uh, it's, a, it's a huge – if you, if you think about how the techn- technological infusion has been over our couple of generations, when you think of the submarine, it really is a, a marvel in technology that we have today. Um, oftentimes, you know, civilians don't understand a lot about what happens in the military. And so I've heard these two terms, the Virginia-class submarine, the Ohio-class submarine. Can you talk about the differences? Well, our Virginia-class submarines are our fast attack submarines, and they uh, typically deploy for six to seven months. 
uh, four deployed. Our Ohio-class submarines, which are getting ready to be replaced with the Ohio replacement uh, class, uh, they're our strategic asset, and they, they have our ballistic missile capability, part of our triad uh, for strategic defense. And so these ballistic missile submarines will actually stay underwater for some time? They do. You know, their patrols uh, typically last for anywhere from 70 to 100 days, uh, and they're dual crewed. Uh, so uh, they'll go out, uh, come back in for some maintenance, and the other crew will take it out. And uh, if you think about the maintenance tail associated with our strategic platforms, the SSBNs or the Ohio class, uh, just to keep those things at sea the way we do is is phenomenal for us. And uh, I don't think there are very many other countries out there that can do that. Um, we're talking about the centennial of the sub-base here in Groton, Connecticut. Um, I'm talking with Captain Paul Whitescarver. He is the commanding officer of, Na- of the sub-base New London. Um, historically, women have played no role in the submarine service. I understand that that's changing. Can you talk about how the Navy's integrating women in the submarine force? Well, we've done it very smartly uh, because it's something that uh, we've we've been planning for years, believe it or not. And when we got the opportunity to do that, we started uh, first with officers. So we have, uh, uh, I think, uh, two ships on the East Coast and two ships on the West Coast that, that uh, uh, had female officers on board. And now we are starting to see the first wave of enlisted uh, female sailors uh, come on board. So, you know, we're getting on to it. It's, they're very tight quarters, so there's a, a little bit of apprehension at first. But uh, uh, Admiral Greenert and his predecessor, they, they knew the, the, we needed to get with it, and we did. We talked about the skills that someone needs to have to become a submariner, but what kind of personality that can handle being underwater for so long? Well, you know, if, if you took the Myers-Briggs test, I think they'd call us all introverts. Uh, but uh, that's that's not really the case. I mean, granted, it's uh, close quarters, but uh, the two-year process that it takes us to get to the ship, I think we, we weed out all the people that probably, you know, the claustrophobic people and the people that uh, would would have some type of uh, mental problem with being closed up for that amount of time underwater. So it's a good process, and, and I can't say enough about the type of people that we have manning them. Tell me about your career. Obviously, you served, when I look at your biography, you served on several different submarines, and you commanded one. Um, how did you get used to um, the life as a submariner? You know, it came at me so fast, I don't think I ever thought about it. Uh, and to be quite frank, uh, the first submarine I was on uh, back in the early 80s was a Thomas Jefferson, and I thought it was huge. You know, so uh, it's they're 360 feet long, three to four story or three to four floors high. You just don't really think about it. And plus, we keep everybody pretty busy. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And I, I don't think once you get there, you're so busy, I don't really think that you, you uh, take into account, hey, I'm underwater. That's kind of <laughs> weird. And Congressman Courtney, um, you know, in 2005, Connecticut came close to losing the right. sub-base. Um, how has the state positioned itself um, to not be in that position again? Well, I think uh, the state's done great work in terms of uh, avoiding hopefully another near-death experience, which is what happened uh, when we were put on the list in the in the 2005 BRAC process. Again, it, there was one last sort of uh, court of appeal, which the state um, organized, Team Connecticut. Uh, Governor Rell was in, in office at the time. Uh, the two senators, my predecessor, Rob Simmons, um, you know, as well as a lot of input from the local community, um, did an outstanding job of challenging the um, 
uh, that list, and 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 Groton was removed from it. But um, since then, uh, I think really the the mission has been to really modernize and upgrade um, the the base. And the Navy has actually been a big partner in terms of the investments that have taken place. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, new piers. Uh, you know, they've uh, got a new operations center, um, new uh, indoor firing range for training, uh, new um, facility for storing. Uh, again, some of the munitions on there, and um, and there's also been again a lot of the more invisible infrastructure improvements in terms of the um, you know high energy costs uh, that uh, the base is part of, just like the rest of the Northeast, and um, uh, and so uh, you know I think again the Navy has spoken pretty um, I think powerfully in terms of the value of the base with uh, a lot of these changes as well as the new undersea warfighting uh, center designation. The state of Connecticut has also put skin in the game. Uh, there was a $50 million bond authorization a number of years ago, which they've been drawing down to help fund some of these improvements. It's a very unique relationship to have a state um, really uh, partnering with the Navy. A memorandum of understanding was uh, hammered out uh, to, to really, in a very unprecedented fashion, to, to make those investments. And, uh, again, we had the head of naval installations, uh, Admiral Dixon Smith, up at the base uh, a month or so ago to talk about, again, some of the new investment, about a $2 million microgrid investment, which uh, Connecticut is putting um, money into. So, you know, the uh, Congress has to authorize a new BRAC round. Um, The administration has requested it uh, the last three or four years running, um, and it's been rejected um, 2005's BRAC has left a lot of bad taste in people's mouths because it did not generate the kind of savings that was uh, touted at the time. Uh, having said that, um, you know, I don't think people can count on that to continue forever. Uh, again, I don't think it's going to happen in this year's Congress. Uh, but um, in the meantime, we've just got to continue sort of that upgrade and in, in investment to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're at the highest level of military value when, when if there's going to be a scoring. I, you know, one thing I would just note is that um, this process is goes back really <laughs> even to before uh, 1916. So as you mentioned in your opening remarks, 1868 was when the Navy actually created a, a storage um, base and um, sort of depot base in, in the, the, the facility there. It was actually Congressman Augustus Brandegee, who was the member of Congress uh, from my from our district, who, who brought that forward. Uh, he actually was one of the four members of Congress who voted for the 13th Amendment in 1865. As you may recall, we had a little kerfluffle with Steven Spielberg from misrepresenting yes. Connecticut's <laughs> vote in the movie Lincoln. And um, and we kind of, I think, uh, did a good job of getting the, you know, a corrected record out there. And again, Augustus Brandegee, who used to ride horseback with President Lincoln at the time, um, you know, wasn't known just for his his vote on the on abolishing slavery, but he also was the guy that coordinated the legislation creating um, the Navy base. Fast forward to the early 1900s, the, the Navy actually talked about closing the base. Uh, again, this was before the sub-base was designated, and uh, Congressman Higgins, Edward Higgins from Norwich, um, you know, led a furious floor fight on, in the House of Representatives and blocked um, that initiative. And again, there was one last try uh, before the sub-base was founded, and uh, Admiral, uh, excuse me, Congressman Mahan, Brian Mahan from uh, the, the district followed up on, uh, on Congressman Higgins' great work in terms of, again, blocking that initiative. So, you know, I... Um, I think all of us who have the honor to serve in this seat, you know, really can go back in time um, to see that it's really um, just critical that, um, you know, governmental leaders, you know, create a strong relationship 
you know, with the, the leadership of folks like Captain Whitescarver to, to make sure that we enhance and improve and, and really, you know, vigorously advocate for uh, what I think is, you know, one of the, uh, as Admiral Greenard said, you know, um, most important components of our Navy. Since we're reaching way back into history, can we talk about, you know, why the Navy chose Groton to be designated as the first submarine base, Captain White's Carver? Did it have to do with, um, you know, we can't talk about submarine history without talking about shipbuilder electric boat. Is that part of the reason? Well, the base uh, was first designated, uh, you know, in 1868, as the congressman said. But I think you have to look at the synergy between Simon Lake and electric boat and how they uh, kind of brought together. So Simon Lake down in in, uh, New Haven area, Bridgeport, and then uh, uh, Electric Boat, uh, they kind of teamed up together and put the place right there on the Thames River. But if you even go back before then, historically speaking, uh, you know, back in the War of 1812, uh, Decatur, Commodore Decatur had the the, the, uh, frigate USS Constitution and two other ships actually blockaded up the Thames River, uh, and they were there for two years. In fact, after one year, uh, they said, hey, I think I want to get out of here. They rowed out, and they uh, kind of mothballed the, the three ships that they had. They came back at the end of the war in 1815 and recommissioned all the ships. And then from that point forward, if you think we have a natural barrier with Long Island, uh, we're kind of north. We get to see all the seasons. It's a great training ground for all of our submarine force to be here. So when, when they thought about bringing the base here in 1868, it was no small surprise that they thought, hey, what a great place to be. It's very well protected. I uh, got a got a great uh, you know place to go train, so it's a super place to be. Congressman Courtney, I wanted to talk more about um, something the captain had mentioned earlier with the Ohio class replacement program. So right. Electric Boat, um, who's got a long history here in Connecticut, just got a new contract to build these replacements. Talk about the importance of this announcement um, for the future of the southeast corner and the whole state. Sure. So. Um, as uh, the captain said, you know, there, there's two classes, and uh, the Virginia-class attack boats um, are now, uh, again, well underway in terms of uh, its construction. I think they are the Illinois, which was uh, uh, christened with uh, the First Lady not long ago, was I think the 26th boat in the class. Um, and, um, and and that, looking at the Navy's shipbuilding plan over the next 30 years, um, you know, that, that program is going to continue to, to, to produce um, – you know, needed uh, vessels for the undersea fleet. In the meantime, the ballistic sub-fleet, which is uh, now going to be well over 35 years old and uh, is projected to time out after 42 years, um, is is now moving forward in terms of both design, uh, engineering, and then uh, they're going to start cutting steel uh, for it um, in, the, in the relatively near future. The Navy... Uh, Again, uh, executed a memorandum of understanding with uh, EB and uh, Huntington Ingalls, which is uh, the other uh, nuclear-certified shipyard down in Virginia, to, to build that replacement program. EB is the prime contractor on it, and about roughly 78% of the work will be done uh, here in New London. 100% of the engineering and design work is, is being done. So if you go to the Pfizer building in New London today, there's almost 4,000 people working in there, and they're almost all millennials or 30-year-olds who are in there. It's a, it's an amazing place, actually. It's a, it's like a Google environment, actually, when you when you sort of walk in there. And um, if you look at the construction schedule for Ohio, I mean, this is going well into the 2030s. The life cycle, in terms of you know maintenance and um, life cycle cost, goes into the 2080s. Mm-hmm. 
So this this is a program that um, you know certainly has a very long horizon, and um, and EB as I said is is the prime contractor um, for it. If you look at the New Start Treaty, which was the last um, uh, arms treaty that was signed with Russia, President Obama uh, got it through the Senate in 2010, and and the Triad, which the captain mentioned. Roughly about 70% of the triad, which is the land-based, air-based, and sea-based deterrence, 70% of it is going to be sea-based. So this this is a program which um, there really is not much debate about in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's going to fit into the Pentagon's planning or, or uh, budgets because um, it's it's totally integrated into the strategic policy of the country based on uh, the last major arms treaty. But it's a fight each year, right, to get that the money allocated. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars. To it build. is, yeah. I, but I, as I said, the uh, if you look at um, the you know pecking order, the food chain in terms of priorities right now, um, you know, as Admiral Greenard said, this is really almost a foundational program for our national defense. I mean, it's uh, it's just something that um, you know whether it's the president's budgets or Congress's budget, it's just not been a really uh, an area of dispute. The rest of the shipbuilding budget. Um, you know, is is definitely got, um, you know, sort of contentious uh, issues about it. And moving forward, as the true costs of this program start to, to really escalate, because it's, it's an expensive program, um, that's going to be really where I think um, the debate is going to uh, be pretty intense at the Armed Services Committee and, and the Congress. But, um, you know, and, and, and Ohio is going to create some of that pressure on the rest of the shipbuilding account. But as I said, I don't think anyone's really seriously proposing scaling it back or cutting it as a solution because it's just, uh, you know, at some point the fleet we have today is just going to run out of fuel and, and we've got to replace it. Captain White's covered. Do you want to add any more to the, the Navy and the Pentagon strategy on, on the submarine force? Well, if you were to ask any of the combatant commanders we have out in the world today, uh, whether that be in, in UCOM or in uh, CENTCOM or PACOM, uh, we don't have enough submarines to support their demands right now. Uh, when we're talking about fast attack submarines, you know, we can go where probably nobody else can go, and you don't even know we're there, which is the good part, because that allows uh, anybody that, uh, you know, we need to do reconnaissance on, uh, they don't change their way of life because there's a big gray hole out there, they can't see us. So it allows us to, to really develop a common operating picture before any type of action that we would have to do, which we probably you know, would be very uh, hesitant to do in the first place. Uh, it allows us to, to make sure that everybody understands what we're up against. You know, so it's, it's very important to every combatant commander out there. And I think the congressman and all of his dealings in Congress and the briefings that he has had in the past would uh, – you know, really mimic what I just said. Absolutely. So, you know, at the Armed Services Committee, uh, this just this past year, we had the commander of Pacific Command, which is just a you know almost a third of the globe uh, under Admiral Harris. And um, you know, again, there's a lot going on out there that didn't exist even you know four or five years ago. The um, you know Chinese Navy is basically militarizing the South China Sea. You know, creating uh, land masses. Um, and, and landing strips and, um, you know, being very aggressive in terms of its territorial claims that I think are, you know, fall way outside of international maritime standards. Uh, so you've got that sort of activity going on. North Korea, I mean, every day um, is just um, acting more belligerent and um, threatening to uh, neighbors. And so, 
uh, when he testified before the committee, he was sort of recounting all of these challenges and, and just very bluntly stated, this guy's an aviator, by the way. He's a Navy aviator, not a, a submariner. And he just said, we need more submarines, period, full stop. Uh, General Breedlove, who's in charge of the uh, North Atlantic Command, um, who's dealing with, again, uh, Putin's militarization of the Arctic Circle. Uh, I mean, it's really quite extraordinary that Putin is somebody with a, uh, an economy that is shrinking, uh, has, should have tremendous budget pressures, but is continuing to invest more and more money into his Navy and his and, and within the Navy's budget submarines. So you've got a situation right now just to sort of really, I think, underscore the change that's happening right now. In 2006, we closed an air base in Iceland where uh, P-8s, which are the submarine hunters, uh, fl- flew out of because, frankly, it was just seemed like a, almost a vestige of the Cold War past. In the President Obama's budget this year, he put in about roughly about $25, $30 million to reopen the Keflavec base uh, because they, they feel that, you know, what's happening out there in terms of that Greenland, Iceland, UK area uh, warrants, uh, you know, basically uh, re- standing up that that activity again. So um, so the world's changing and, and there's just no question that uh, the combatant commanders, as the captain said, um, you know, the demand signal for, um, you know, getting more boats out there is very strong. You had mentioned Russia. When people think of submarines, they think of the Cold War. Um, but from what you understand, from when from your when you're briefed uh, down yeah. in Washington, I mean, Russia is not at the place that they were during the Cold War in terms of their, their submarine fleet. But they are spending lots of money to modernize. That's right. I mean, again, I don't want to overstate the, the case. We're not, you know, in the um, height of the of Cold War. But um, you know, the the um, there's a new class of uh, Russian submarines that are now. Uh, appearing out there. Um, we had Admiral James Stravides, who's now the dean of the uh, Fletcher School of Diplomacy up at Tufts University, uh, appeared before the committee. He was a past NATO commander, um, you know, just an intellectual giant and, and you know, not a warmonger. But when he was asked the question about, you know, what would how would you describe what's going on up there today? And he, he basically, in public session, said it's roughly about 70 percent of the submarine activity of the height of the Cold War. So, you know, that's a I think a pretty, um, as I said, you know, well-educated, neutral, experienced source who, um, you know, is saying that, you know, that things are changing up there. And again, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, when you look at the Russian economy and, um, you know, uh, what goal or, um, uh, you know, mission the Putin seems to you know, think he's accomplishing. But nonetheless, uh, the activity is is heightening up. So our NATO allies are now starting to ramp up, you know, their um, defense spending as well. And uh, even some of the Scandinavian countries are starting to get, uh, again, a lot more active than they were even four or five years ago. Um, Before we break, I wanted to ask you, with the Ohio replacement program ramping up, I mean, are those submarines going to be ready in time to deal with these, you know, the Russia and the China. Um, well, again, comments. we have an existing fleet that's out there right now, and um, and really, what we're talking about is a replacement program, uh, and it's actually going to be a smaller fleet than the the one before. So, you know, again, for people who think that this is just sort of uh, you know going back to Cold War spending, it, it's not. Uh, again, the the treaty, the New Start treaty, actually limited uh, or reduced the the nuclear stockpile, and and that's a good thing, obviously. Um, but the, uh, I mean, your point about is is it going to be in time? I mean, that's really, I think, um, you know, the, the question of the day in terms of, uh, you know, if you look at the plan 
it, it, it is really there's no cushion here. There's no margin for uh, late delivery um, down the road here. And um, you know, I'm obviously somebody who is very bullish on our workforce down there, and that you know the um, so far the milestones are getting um, hit in terms of you know getting uh, that fleet on, uh, ready to go. And um, uh, but Connecticut has some some work to do in terms of getting our workforce programs uh, really back to where they were um, in the 80s, apprenticeship programs, advanced manufacturing. and um, uh, and But that's a good problem to have, I, I would argue. And, and I think, um, you know, we've got some good leadership down there with the mayor and others that are, are moving forward in that direction. We're talking about Connecticut's history of submarines and the industry here as we celebrate 100 years as the submarine capital of the world in Groton. When we come back from a break, we'll hear more about the local men and women who build submarines. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, New Haven-based filmmaker Crystal Emery will tell us about her new documentary, Black Women in Medicine. We'll hear from some of the doctors and surgeons featured in the film and learn about efforts to attract more black women to the medical field. And later, a check-in with Afropop Worldwide producer Banning Air about his recent travels to Mali. He'll share some music from the region. That's tomorrow. Today, we're talking about Connecticut submarine heritage. This year is the centennial of Naval Submarine Base New London. In studio with me are Captain Paul Whitescarver, Commanding Officer of Naval Submarine Base New London, and 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, when we talk about submarines in the state, we can't forget about General Dynamics' electric boat. The company has roots in Connecticut dating back to the 19th century. Joining us now by phone is Tom Plant. He's Director of Strategic Planning at General Dynamics' electric boat. Hi, Tom. Hello, how you doing? I'm well. So we know there's been events going on for several months to commemorate uh, the centennial of the sub-base and its submarine school, but we can't talk about the past and the future of submarines without talking about Electric Boat. Tell us what our listeners should know about this company that's been rooted here for so long. Well, we're a 116-year-old company founded by the inventor of the U.S. Navy submarine, John Holland. Um, so we've, we've been here for a while since the beginning of the submarine U.S. Navy submarine fleet, and uh, basically established a footprint in uh, in Connecticut in the Groton shipyard, our current um, one of our current locations in 1911, and uh, we've delivered over 300 submarines to the U.S. Navy. In our early years, we did do um, submarines for uh, foreign customers, but uh, since since uh, about 1933, it's been um, pretty exclusively U.S. Navy submarines. So. Uh, uh, pretty much a proud long history. We've uh, designed the first diesel submarine, the E-1, back in 1911, and uh, did that for the Navy. We did the first nuclear power submarine, the USS Nautilus, which uh, 61 years ago today was underway on nuclear power for the first time, and that was a, a paradigm-breaking innovation. Um, and uh, we continue to to enjoy a proud um, tradition of innovation um, in this community, uh, working closely with the sub-base uh, sub, sub folks and the sub-schools and the Naval Undersea Warfare Center. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty good region that has kind of been responsible, I think, for, uh, for, the, for the submarine force and the undersea dominance we enjoy today. And, and who are the people that build submarines? Well, in the, in the United States, there's really only two companies that do it. Um, 
electric boat and uh, Newport News Shipbuilding, which is part of Huntington Ingalls Industries. Um, today we uh, collaborate on submarine uh, construction programs and will continue to do so in the future. Um, in the past, uh, both companies have done some submarine designs, but Electric Boat pretty much has the lion's share of the submarine designs, at least on the nuclear Navy front. Um, we've, we've designed on the order of 19 of the 22 or so different designs that the Navy has, has uh, done since the first design in Nautilus. So it's pretty much uh, two, two U.S. companies that build U.S. submarines. And we're talking about more than 10,000 workers locally? Right. Um, so Electric Boat has um, 14,200 or so in our workforce today. Connecticut is about 10,000. Uh, 5,200 are in the engineering and design side of the business, and 4,800 or so are in the operations and support side. That's the Connecticut um, population. Congressman Courtney was talking earlier about the new contract that EB just was awarded for um, the Ohio class replacement submarines. Um, talk about knowledge transfer in the sense that you've had these workers for some time building submarines. They're retiring. You're bringing on a new a new workforce, a younger um, um, employer employees, engineers, designers. Um, how do you find um, the people to build these these newer submarines? Well, so. So first, you've got to understand your current workforce and the demographics, as you noted. Um, and uh, the folks that are 40-year people, and we have a lot of people in our company that have over 40 years of experience, they started their careers here. And uh, we have a very good um, population that, that stays at Electric Boat for a career. And uh, so we have a lot of experienced folks with over 40 years' experience. We even have some up to 55 years' experience. And um, these are our master shipbuilders. And today, they're, you know, they were the ones that really built the Ohio-class submarines that started in the, in the 680-class submarines that started in the 70s. And they're getting ready to retri- retire, as you point out. And um, so, so they're, today, what they're doing is they're showing people that we're hiring new um, how, to, how to build submarines. And, and it's, building a submarine is not something that is available, available, available commercially out there in, uh, in different other industries. It's a pretty unique skill, and it's pretty unique requirements, and there's a lot of quality assurance that goes in that. So, so it has to be taught from senior people to, to, the, to the next generation shipbuilder, and that's a mentoring process. It's an on-the-job training process, and, um, and to get workers ready to, re- to be ready to do that, we need to bring them in with some skill set. They have to have a good, um, I'd say, a good uh, command of math and science is helpful to understand the very technical business we're in. And uh, the knowledge transfer process is just being able to mentor new people, have um, you know, good good mechanisms for training them when they arrive um, in in their first jobs here, and and then over time they'll learn all of the things they need to learn in a particular discipline or a particular craft. And uh, that's not something that happens overnight. It happens over a period of time. But the, the best thing we could do is when we, when we get a new, a new uh, hire in is, you know, the, we put them to work right away and we give them, you know, the right kinds of tasks so they can develop skill and competency and confidence as they uh, learn our business. 
And, and where are these these uh, new students coming from? Congressman Courtney, Courtney, I think I've heard you mention in the past that UConn is the engineering program there. It's a pipeline to EB. Yes. Um, I mean, we um, President Herbst had a great visit last summer to meet with some of the, the new um, employees as well as the internship uh, program, which uh, UConn and Electric Boat have put together. But I, mean, I think as Tom will say, um, you know, they're, they're casting their net um, pretty wide in terms of um, – uh, other uh, schools in Connecticut, Central has a great engineering program, but frankly, also outside of Connecticut. So, um, you know, it's the the great counter narrative of people who think that all young people, uh, you know, are, are heading for the exits. I mean, EB is actually bringing people in to uh, Connecticut. And, you know, these are the kinds of jobs and careers that you can, you know, support yourself and, and a family uh, for a long time. And what about uh, the trades, Tom? Um, I, I've been reading, and, and I think one of our reporters, uh, Harriet Jones, had had done some reporting on how um, EB and the, uh, is collaborating with local community colleges and workforce investment boards to to get the local trades um, up to speed on all these new jobs that are available because of this ramp up. Right. So, so we're gonna today. We're at fourteen thousand. We expect to be at eighteen thousand when we hit the peak demand. These programs are very have very long cycles. So our peak demand at eighteen thousand is going to occur in twenty thirty. And so, so we got a little bit of runway between now and then. But we have, as you pointed out earlier, um, this aging workforce. So, so we we will be hiring to support um, the near term demands. And. Uh, you know, what we want to be able to do is, um, and, and as Congressman Courtney pointed out, you know, we got a pretty wide net, and we've, we've kind of packaged how we recruit and how we go identify um, the best people we can, we can bring into the business, um, uh, a pretty wide net. So a lot of our um, recruiting is happening in the, in the southern New England region between uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. That's where we get... A large percentage, but um, we do um, recruit uh, beyond that. And uh, in the last two years, we've identified over 40,000 candidates, some in engineering and a lot in the trades. And uh, we're basically working with the state, local state folks on setting up pipelines in very specific trade areas like welding. Welding is a trade that requires a little bit more um, training and preparation to get ready to do the work we do. Um, it may be uh, two months of um, specialized training to get a welder just, just through the door and be able to um, be productive and uh, do the kinds of things we're going to need them to do. So, so we're working with um, community colleges and, and different um, programs to set up these centers for training um, uh, pre-employment and, and obviously, we have our own training programs once we get them through the door and uh, start putting them to work to, uh, to, to learn all the things they have to learn in a particular discipline. And uh, that will include welding. Welding is one that, you know, we do a lot of, obviously, and it's structural welding. It's pipe welding. It's, we've got outside machinists. We have um, electricians. We have carpentry. So pretty much all the physical trades that go into building um, product here or will be in demand. And, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is identify the demand signals and work with the community colleges in the region to um, specialize in, in their training and 
tail of their training to uh, support what we need for a new hire. All right. Well, Tom, we're almost about out of time. Tom Plant, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us, Director of Strategic Planning at General Dynamics Electric Boat. Just a couple of minutes left, Congressman. You wanted to add to Just, the, yeah, the pipeline? This uh, effort got a really good boost uh, this year from the U.S. Department of Labor. The um, uh, DOL uh, awarded $6 million to, to manufacturing pipeline to the uh, Southeastern Connecticut Workforce Investment Board, which is that collaborative structure that EB, the community colleges, um, you know, are putting together to, again, uh, really ramp up the, these metal trade uh, opportunities. Uh, and tomorrow we're going to be cutting a ribbon at Grasso Tech, uh, which is the site of one of these um, training programs. And again, it's not for high school age kids who attend Grasso, which is a great school down there. But, uh, you know, they're, what this, the facility is being used for is actually older uh, folks who uh, basically want to kind of, um, you know, refresh and reset themselves for, for the, these opportunities. So, um, you know, this is a, an effort in a, in a uh, trend that even the in Washington, the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, Secretary Tom Perez was up visiting last year, recognized is um, requires a, a, an investment from Washington to, to get this workforce ready. We're almost out of time. Uh, commemoration again of the Connecticut submarine century continues through October. Uh, Captain Whitescarver, what's up next in terms of celebrating the history here? Well, first, I'd like to thank the state and local communities for making this uh, year-long celebration special for the base. Uh, you know, the next big thing we have is June 21st, which is our birthday. So we'll cut a cake at the museum uh, and the, the historic ship Nautilus. And then, as the mayor had pointed out, we'll go over to Washington Park and have have a lot of fun. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. I want to thank Captain Paul Whitescarver, Commanding Officer of Naval Submarine Base New London, for joining us in studio. Also, Second District Congressman Joe Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>